Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much uh, for your word that you speak. And we pray that you would indeed open the eyes of our hearts, uh, that we might see your son glorified, and that we might worship him, and that we might follow him. In his mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, what do you do if you have an important message uh, to tell people? Of course, first, you need to get their attention. Uh, We light up the building, don't we? Uh, So that people know we're here and they can come in and hear the amazing news uh, about Jesus. Uh, We decorate uh, the church uh, each Christmas uh, because we want people to come in and be welcomed so that they can hear about Jesus. Uh, We sing carols, partly as a way of praising our wonderful Lord, uh, but also so that people hear And they come in through our doors and they hear about Jesus. Uh, That's why we'll be singing them at uh, Oxford Circus over the next two weekends. Um, If you have wandered in because you've seen the lights and heard the sound, uh, then you're so welcome. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. What does uh, God the Father do uh, when he wants three ordinary men, Peter, James and John, to get the message? Well, he puts on an incredible sound and light show. It's what we call the transfiguration, the event that we've uh, just read about. What is it that he wants to say? Have a look at verse 7. We're on page 1012. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. God the Father wanted to tell them something about who Jesus is and then something about what to do because of that. These are going to be our two points uh, for this evening up on the screen. Jesus is the glorious, loved son. So listen to him as he speaks about suffering. So first, Jesus is the glorious, loved son. Uh, The events described in uh, verses 2 to 8, they're utterly amazing, aren't they? Follow through uh, with me as we build up a picture of who they tell us that Jesus is. So it's just uh, six days from the events that we heard about at the end of chapter 8. Jesus goes up a high mountain, uh, probably Mount Hermon, uh, with with his three closest friends, verse 2, if you look at that. Um, And there at the top nearly 3,000 metres up, possibly surrounded by snow, he is transfigured. His appearance is changed dramatically. Uh, Mark doesn't give us a description of what Jesus uh, looks like, uh, but it's such a complete transformation that even his clothes are changed. They're hard to look at. They're dazzling white. In a world before uh, Daz and Vanish and Purcell, uh, the best that Peter, who is uh, probably the eyewitness that Mark got this story from, the best that Peter can do is to say that it's whiter than any bleach in the world could do. In some ways, we're not really meant to be able to picture uh, the scene all that much, just the sort of effect of it on them. Uh, If we had been there, Uh, we would have shielded our eyes, like if all the Christmas lights of Regent Street and Oxford Street were crammed into this room, that sort of dazzling uh, brightness. 
In a world before electricity uh, and special effects, they would have been totally amazed at the scene before them. Which is quite right, isn't it? Because it is the glory of God shining through a man. But it must have still been possible for them to see something, uh, because onto the scene, uh, in verse 4, come Moses and Elijah. And they have an audience with Jesus, just like the king when he has an audience with one of his subjects. Well, why these two? Well, they represent the Old Testament uh, prophetic traditions. They're the ones who have constantly pointed towards Jesus, towards the coming of the Messiah. And now they're here to testify to his greatness. They're also both associated with mountaintop experiences when they heard from God on Mount Sinai. More of that in a moment. Well, what do you say at a moment uh, like that? Uh, Paul Peter often has a reputation for saying silly things, uh, but I'm not really sure that you can blame him on this occasion. He's been dazzled by Jesus's appearance, and he has just seen two of God's great prophets speaking with his friend. And so he, James and John, verse 6, are frightened. They're terrified. What Peter actually says is not uh, so stupid when you think about it. Uh, He offers to put up tents uh, for the three of them. Uh, Now, in hindsight, perhaps he would have uh, chosen to say something else. But here he's probably thinking two things. The first is that they're 3,000 metres up a mountain. A shelter isn't really a bad idea, is it? Um, Secondly, the whole scene reminds us of Mount Sinai. Uh, You've got the high mountain, you've got the light... And you've got Moses and Elijah. We're about to get, in verse 7, the cloud and the voice of God. Uh, When they come down into the valley, uh, Jesus calls the generation unbelieving, a good description of the wilderness generation who had cast the golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai. And so with that in mind, making a tent for the glory of God makes sense. That's what God instructs his people to do. Uh, after giving the law on Sinai. They build a tent, a tabernacle, so that God's glory can go with his people. But instead of pitching a tent, verse 7, look at that again, please. The cloud covers them, and they hear the voice, the voice of God the Father. Now, again, there's no commentary here about uh, what's going on, Uh, but when he's an old man, Peter... It says this about the whole episode. It's in his second letter. Uh, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. Peter knew that he was seeing the majesty of Jesus and hearing the voice from the majestic glory. It is an incredible moment. Peter and the others are addressed directly by God the Father. 
to tell them who Jesus is. He is the son that the father loves. Jesus is the glorious loved son. At Jesus's baptism, God says, you are my son whom I love. Now, instead of being directed to Jesus, it's directed to his disciples. This is my son. And just as suddenly as the voice and the cloud appear, verse 8, it's gone. And Jesus is alone with them. He is not whisked off back to glory uh, with Elijah and Moses. Uh, By the way, this isn't an instruction to uh, sort of do away with the Old Testament Uh, as if only Jesus' words in the New Testament are worth listening to. Uh, No, Moses and Elijah's job is testifying, witnessing to who Jesus is. And their job is finished. It stands written in our Bibles. And so they go uh, back to glory. Jesus, however, his job is not finished. And so he remains with his uh, disciples. So what are we to make of this extraordinary event? Uh, Well, we'll get to the big application of listening to Jesus in a minute. But I want us to pause for a moment uh, on what it tells us about who Jesus is, which then tells us why we would listen uh, to him. Here at the turning point of Mark's gospel, as we move from broadly a question of who is Jesus to what he came to do, we have sort of confirmation of Mark's uh, sort of beginning thesis statement of uh, chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Peter recognizes the first in chapter 8, verse 29. We read about that Uh, two weeks ago. And now we have God the Father stating the second in 9 verse 7. Now, if that all sounds a bit sort of bland and uh, clinical, uh, then try thinking about the fact that this is a little window of how God the Father really sees God the Son. He sees him as glorious and loved. This is a preview into what Jesus is like now after the resurrection. We get that from verse 9, if you look at that. Jesus orders them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. As the eternal uh, Son of God, he was and is always glorious. That glory is sort of magnified at the cross and the resurrection. He kept it under wraps, Uh, most of the time. The transfiguration is a bit like uh, giving someone a sneak preview of their Christmas present, but then saying you cannot open it until Christmas morning. That is the right time. Jesus is the glorious, loved son. And so we listen to him because he is worth listening to. He has the right to be listened to. Listening to him is listening to the one who reveals what God is really like to us. It is listening to the one that God the Father says when he looks at him, yes, that is my son. I love him. I delight in all that he says and does. So, 
That is a reason to listen to Jesus. But what is it that he's saying? Here's our second point. Listen to Jesus as he talks about suffering. Listen to Jesus as he talks about suffering. Now, Jesus says a lot of uh, different things, doesn't he? The Bible is uh, a long book. We have Mark's gospel uh, with lots of his words uh, recorded in it. That's what we've been studying over the last um, eight weeks. Uh, We have the other gospels, uh, which have even more of his words. Uh, We have the rest of the New Testament, which contains the words of his apostles, his uh, sort of delegated uh, sent ones. And we have the Old Testament, uh, which testifies to him, the living word. And so we have plenty to listen to uh, when we're talking about listening to Jesus. But I think there is something more specific uh, going on when God the Father says in verse 7, listen to him. We need to think about what is going on around uh, that statement. What it is that Jesus says uh, after that new mountaintop command, no longer 10, but one. I think it's significant that the transfiguration and this great voice of the Father, they're surrounded on either side with Jesus talking about his suffering. The voice of God in verse 7 is sort of equivalent to applying bold text to an email to uh, highlight the bit that you really want people to read. God's voice makes what Jesus says next into bold text. So as we saw last week in 8 verses 31 to 9 verse 1, Jesus talks about his suffering. And then he talks about how his followers must suffer with him. And what happens? Well, his disciples fail to listen. And Peter even rebukes him. And now, six days later, the first thing that Mark records Jesus telling them after the voice from heaven is that he's going to rise from the dead, verse 9. But they miss the bold type. Verse 10, let me read that. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. When it says discussed what rising from the dead meant. It's not sort of a nice chat over coffee. It's more like interrogating it to see whether it's right. Verse 10, they do not listen to what Jesus has just said. And that's backed up by verse 11 uh, when they ask this uh, question. Um, They've just seen Elijah, haven't they? And so uh, they've got him on their minds. Uh, And they sort of delve back into their Old Testament uh, knowledge And they correctly identify uh, Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, which are, in fact, the last verses in um, our Old Testament, uh, though not uh, their scripture. Um, As you'll see as we read it, you get Moses and Elijah together in these uh, few verses. Let me read it to us. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave to him at Horeb, which is just another name for Sinai, uh, for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. 
The point is that there is a promise that when the new Elijah comes, he will remind them of the law of their forefathers. That's what's going on in those uh, verses. And then in verse 6 of of Malachi 4, the next thing on the agenda is uh, the day of judgment, which will be when the Messiah comes in glory. So they've got that bit sort of right. Uh, But one commentator calls verse 11 a leading question. Uh, It means, the question in verse 11 means something along these lines. Um, If Elijah is going to come and sort everything out, and then the Messiah is going to come and bring judgment and the restoration of all things, why, Jesus, are you talking about the the Messiah suffering and dying? Isn't that just completely unnecessary? Look at verse 12. Jesus affirms some of it, doesn't he? To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? So he does affirm stuff, but he adds a little bit. Jesus says, yes, the scriptures speak of Elijah coming. But they also speak of the Son of Man, the Messiah, suffering and being rejected. There are echoes of the suffering servant from Isaiah 53, if you know that passage. The disciples only had in view the Messiah coming in glory. They had not listened to the consistent witness of their scriptures. They had not listened to Jesus when he taught that he, as Messiah, had to suffer and be rejected and die for his people. When God the Father tells Peter, James and John to listen to his glorious loved son, it does mean listen to everything that Jesus says. But it particularly means listen to him when he talks about his suffering and the fact that we, as his followers, must suffer with him. Are we willing to hear Jesus when he says that about himself and about us? Verse 13 adds a layer to all of this, more richness. Although there's no specific uh, scripture about the new Elijah having to suffer, the first Elijah in uh, the Old Testament, suffered at the hands of King Ahaz and Queen Jezebel. John the Baptist suffered at the hands of King Herod and Queen Herodias, as we saw back in uh, Mark chapter 6. Sort of combining those with the description of uh, John in Mark 1, we can see that John the Baptist is the new Elijah. Jesus is therefore able to say, in verse 13, the new Elijah has come. And look what happened to him. Yes, he preached a message of repentance, preparing the way for the restoration of all things. But he also suffered at the hands of an unjust judge, dying an unfair death for speaking the truth. By pointing this out, Jesus is blowing out of the water two ideas. 
Uh, the first is that something else needs to happen uh, before the central act of God's rescue plan. No other preparation is needed uh, for the cross. The second is uh, that the idea uh, that God's rescue plan could be achieved in any other way. The disciples thought that Elijah could just come and restore all things, just clean everything up. Jesus says, no, even the new Elijah suffered and died. Why would it be any different for God's Messiah? That's why even at Christmas, over the next few weeks, we will talk about the cross and the resurrection. Uh, If you're new uh, to Christian things and you're struggling to get your head around some of the ideas in this passage, uh, then do pick up uh, one of these, uh, John uh, 1 to 1, or one of the other Gospels uh, from the back of the Connect Corner. Um, Ask a Christian friend, if uh, you have one here, uh, to read the Gospel uh, with you. Uh, The sort of thing that Christine was talking about uh, earlier. Um, You'll see that in uh, each Gospel, the sort of astounding miracle of Christmas leads to that central miracle of Easter. The Son of God took on flesh because God's Messiah had to suffer and die. For those of us who know that, we must listen to Jesus when he says we must, uh, that he must suffer, be rejected and be killed. He really does mean it. That's why he says it again and again. Listen to Jesus when he says that his followers must suffer and be rejected and even on occasion be killed for him. Is that something that we are willing to hear? The pyrotechnics of uh, the transfiguration and the booming voice of the father, they are meant to make us sit up and listen. We can't ignore this central piece of Jesus's identity and his teaching about himself. The piece the father has sort of applied bold text to. If you were here last week, uh, we spoke about what taking up your cross uh, looked like and what being willing to suffer to follow a suffering Messiah might look like too. Here's a suggestion uh, for this week. Uh, why not invite someone uh, to a carol service? Uh, it is, it's not too late. What's the worst that could happen? Well, I suppose uh, that uh, someone could be offended and they could say no. But that would just be following in Jesus's footsteps, wouldn't it? Being rejected. What's the best that could happen? Well, uh, they might just end up meeting the glorious, loved suffering son. As Ellie has already said, this is uh, the last sermon in our series on Mark's gospel until we come uh, back to it in 2024. We've seen hard hearts and we've seen the path of following a rejected Messiah. We've been invited to a feast with the king and to walk the path of a condemned man. Following Jesus is a paradox. It is feasting and it is dying. Our last song helps us uh, to express that, that we're going to sing in a minute. Let me read uh, just the first verse uh, to us. Jesus, I my cross have taken, 
all to leave and follow you. Son of man, despised, forsaken, Lord of all I am or do. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known. Yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. Do you see the paradox in there? Now, I don't know how you feel as I read those uh, words. Uh, For some, those are words that you simply can't sing. Uh, This is what Jesus calls his followers to, to follow him at a great cost, but for an amazing reward, friendship with God himself. God and heaven are still my, my own. For many of us, we are prepared uh, to sing that, and that is wonderful uh, to join with you in a minute to do that. But we're struck by the enormity of what Jesus is calling us to. Last week, we thought about how Jesus invites and commands us to come and die with him as we follow him to the mountain of glory along the path which necessarily winds its way through the valley of suffering and death. Those are challenging and sobering words of Jesus. We must live like condemned people, suffering now and glory later. Brothers and sisters, we need to keep walking this way. If you do join in at this song in a few minutes' time, we will be giving voice to verse 34 of chapter 8. And we'll be showing that we have listened to the voice of God the Father in verse 7 from this week. Let me read both of those, and then I'll invite the band back up. So 8 verse 34. Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Verse 7 of chapter 9. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him.